Hey, it's Isabel back with some uncut, unedited early interviews from the Borderline podcast for your holiday break. Today, I am rerunning my very early conversation with Colin Yeo, who is a British immigration lawyer, the founder of freemovement.org. And uh, we talked about the hostile environment, how that came to be, and the genesis of the incredibly tough immigration system in the UK. It was really an enlightening conversation that helps you understand everything else that's happening in British politics at the moment, such as the nationality and borders bills, which is very much, very much a current conversation, even though this dates back a year and a half almost now. Have a listen. Here is Colin Yeo in our full unedited conversation from 2020. Well, thank you for, for doing this. Um, I read the book last night don't recommend it as a bedtime read. <laughs> it really gets your blood pressure up. Um, but but it was really interesting. What is it like launching a book mid-pandemic? Yeah, that, well, that's interesting because it's, um, you know, I don't really know a lot about publishing and things. This is my, this is the first book I've written. It's been quite a, quite an interesting experience sort of going through the writing process and the, the kind of launch bit. But um, yeah, we, we had to have an online launch, which, which kind of went okay. I think we had probably more people tuned in for that than we would have done if we'd done it in person, which was nice. Um, but yeah, you know, bookshops are, are barely open. People aren't sort of going to the shops. Um, the online distributors aren't necessarily ordering in many copies of books because they're understandably focusing on you know, slightly more vital needs than 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 reading. Um, so yeah, it's a slight it's a slightly strange experience. Yeah, I bet I bet as it must be to be an immigration lawyer in the pandemic. How how has that gone? Have things sort of ground to a halt, or on the contrary, has it been really busy? Well, it's it's a quite a strange time because um, in in the very short term, there's basically no need for an immigration lawyer, which is which is kind of great um, because the a lot of countries and the UK is is doing this as well are basically saying that if you um, if you're a migrant and you're in the country, then your permission to stay there will be extended automatically in the meantime. Um, so people, you know, there, there aren't that many flights available at the moment, and sometimes flights just aren't available at all. So people can't really move. And also people, you know, people are having to face some difficult choices about what country to bunker down in effectively. You know, should they be in their country of nationality or should they be in the country that they happen to find themselves in? Perhaps they're with family members or that they're working or, or something like that. So in the short term, yeah, people don't really need the help of an immigration lawyer because things are being handled automatically. But there's also... Um, a sort of huge demand for information. And um, certainly, I don't know how it's been handled in other countries, but here in the UK, the information that's been provided by the government has been pretty sketchy at times and not that easy to access or understand. So there's a hu huge demand for, for information, if not for the actual sort of business of, of making applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've I've wondered about that, actually. I um, decided early on in March to go spend a lockdown in, in my country of residence. And I found myself counting the days because there's that, um, you know, six months out of every 12 months in the country residency requirement to get settled status, which I still don't have. And so, yeah, I found myself counting days and being very unclear as to, you know, what happens if because of the pandemic you go over, um, and I decided to not chance it and come back to the UK. So I imagine there's a lot of these tricky situations. Yeah, well, in the future, it's going to be, we still just don't know how it's going to work out. And, and like you say, there are residency requirements for, for various different types of visas where you've got to spend a certain amount of time. It also has tax implications. And that, that is something I know nothing about, basically. But, you know, I know that there's an issue there. Um, and again, we don't really have very much clarity at the moment about how these things work out in in the long run, and you know another another example of that is that in the UK and I, th I think in quite a few other countries we've got various different income requirements for migrants. So migrants are kind of yeah, this goes back away a now. Migrants tend to be valued in rather um, basic utilitarian kind of terms in the United Kingdom. You know what are they worth to us um, in 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 
sort of fiscal terms rather than cultural or social terms, which is, is very unfortunate. Um, and one of the ways that manifests itself in the rules is that migrants have to earn a certain amount, otherwise they have to leave, basically. And, you know, during a global pandemic, when incomes have been hit, there's a lockdown that's been imposed by the government, um, people are being laid off and having their incomes reduced in various different ways. It, we, we don't really know how that's going to play out in the longer run. So it, it's it's a time of real uncertainty for a lot of people. Mm. And we've seen that migrants were also overly represented in these frontline essential jobs that uh, ended up being very exposed to the pandemic. There was this story on the uh, the cleaners at the Ministry of Justice that made a bit of a scandal this week. Yeah, they've suddenly find themselves going from you know low valued, um, supposedly low skilled um, roles to suddenly being key workers, which is which is nice, but. Um, it doesn't really count for anything in the long run if the rules don't change to reflect that. But it's it's interesting because it, it feels like it could be a time where people are thinking again about about the value of migrants and just their sort of priorities in life, perhaps. And it's maybe a little optimistic and naive on my part, I don't know. But it feels like it could be a time when people think, well, hang on a minute, you know, the, the people who've kept our country running, kept the supply chains functioning and so on, maybe they are actually quite important after all, and maybe it would be a struggle if we had to cope without them. Right. We've been clapping for the NHS, which is uh, staffed by a lot of migrants and, and cashiers and delivery people and all, and all that. But yeah, does this have weight in an application to the Home Office? I, I don't know. Not at this point, I guess, maybe in the future. Well, it's certainly not at the moment. Um, you know, And what we see at the moment is is that the Home Office plans before the pandemic were basically to prevent the entry of what were previously called low-skilled workers. Um, it was never really about low skill. It was always about low salary. And there, there are quite a few skilled roles that don't necessarily earn a lot. Um, but that was the kind of language that was being used. And in particular, the end of free movement rights for European citizens would have meant that um, unless some sort of new scheme was introduced, it would be that there'd be a lot less, um, it'd be a lot harder for those kind of people to come to the UK to pick fruit or work in the NHS or work in supply chains, work in coffee shops. There just be, wouldn't be a route for them to come to the UK to do that in future. Um, and, and as far as we know, that's still Home Office policy for after June 2021 when we're, we're told there's going to be a new immigration system. So you mentioned the the income requirement, which I think leads to one of the more unjust and, and, and frustrating situation of all the unjust and frustrating situations that, that you discuss in the book, which is the separation of family and the, and the pushing into exile, pretty much, of, of even British citizens and British children. Um, can you tell me a bit about about how that works and how we got to that situation. Yeah, so so back in 2012, um, a new rule was introduced by then Home Secretary Theresa May, and it requires um, a person in the UK who's sponsoring a, a spouse or partner, it requires the UK-based person to be earning at least £18,600. Now, that's quite a lot of money. Um, you know, it's a lot more than the minimum wage was at that time, although the minimum wage has, has gone up since then. It's, it's still a bit more. Um, but it's particularly a lot of money for certain people. So if you're living and working outside London, if, you, um, if you're a woman, if you're part-time, if you're young, you know, there's, there's whole groups of people. Um, if, you're, if you're from a, an ethnic minority, you know, your, your pay on average is, it ends up being lower. Um, so there are whole groups of people who are affected by that, who find it very difficult to sponsor um, a spouse or partner. And it means that either they have to go and live in another country to be together as a family, um, or they have to live apart. And, um, you know, one of the parents is going to be basically a single parent. And you get what was previously being called a Skype family, where you know, the children only really know one of their parents through, through video calls, which is it's just tragic. And certainly in, in the lockdown, I think it gave a lot of people a window into what that means to only be able to reach a family through Skype. Um, do you think that would 
change people's attitudes, make them care a little bit more about this? Or is this something that really only people who have their own experience of immigration are going to be uh, aware of? I don't know. I don't know. I, I could see that perhaps more thoughtful um, people with a bit more empathy might realize how inadequate video calls are as a substitute for for a hug, for, for actual meaningful family life and engagement between parent and child. Um, but others might well just say, well, you know, we cope during lockdown so so they can cope. You know, I, I, I don't know. It, it, it Often things, you know, we, we might hope that things will be different in future, but people often revert to type i think that's that's what um the sort of experience of life tells us isn't it mm -hmm. and it's a type that's um a bit ironic because it's coming from a conservative government which for whom you know family values is is usually a, a big part of of their platform um and in thinking more broadly not just about the uk uh, i think family separation has been a big issue as well in, in the u.s immigration system in the past um, year or so and and now we're seeing the US really uh, really restrict immigration to to a trickle uh, in the pandemic um, ha I wonder you know, sort of what your reaction to I mean this this week we heard about international students essentially being asked to leave yeah I, I saw the announcement on that and it it, it does seem extraordinary and there's a chapter in 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 the book which i think we're, we're going to talk about about um students and basically how how valuable they are to to a country and to an economy and how how important it is to proactively attract them one i think one of the mistakes that we see being made here in the uk and and perhaps also in future in the us um is the assumption that people will want to um, come to our country. So if you make it possible for people to come, then they will come. Um, the kind of, um, it's, a, it's a bit of an obscure reference this, but the kind of Kevin Cosner field of dreams, build it, they will come type thing. And it, it, it doesn't necessarily work like that. You actually have to proactively attract people and make your country a welcoming place to get the kind of migrants to come who 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 people design these policies are kind of aiming it at so the sort of internationally mobile um very talented potentially highly highly skilled highly paid individuals and if you have policies that um are generally tough on immigration if you use um, anti-immigrant rhetoric and if you have arbitrary policies which make the future uncertain for people then they'll think twice about moving to that country um, and it's not, you know, the low-skilled migrants who get put off. It's the high-skilled migrants who get put off because they've got a choice about where they go to. There's lots of countries who are interested in sort of trying to attract them. And, um, you know, it, it's... Um, I, I, I saw something I, I saw something interesting where um, a former minister, um, Boris Johnson's brother, actually, um, has written the, the introduction to a, a report on foreign students. And he just mentions in passing that... Um, and Theresa May was um, was known as Agent May by um, by the Canadian university people because she was so helpful to their recruitment efforts because she was putting international students off coming to the UK. It was actually a drive to reduce the number of international students coming to the UK. Um, and that was great for other countries, which were then able to attract them instead. Yeah, I just uh, did an episode recently on on international students, and it's it was striking that, uh, you know, in fact, most international students come from Asia, but they now also mostly go to Asia. Um, and the, the appeal of American or UK universities has really declined as, as part of that, that rhetoric and, and the whole rhetoric around, um, you know, oh, we're, we only want highly skilled people. Um, yeah, as you said, the, the problem is when, when you're your rhetoric is is aggressively anti-immigrant. Um, the the you know wealthy professional, highly skilled immigrants um, are also turned off, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's like a it's like a market. Um, you know, you, you're trying to attract people, um, and and in fact, politicians on the right are often doing you know, saying that they want the brightest and best, but at the same time introducing policies and using language that that puts those people off. And then the first ones to leave because they can, because they yeah. have options. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was struck reading the book 
uh, by the phrase hostile environment, which I would have thought, you know, was just a way for opponents to describe the system, but is actually the actual policy uh, that, that willingly um, the Home Office is, is putting forward. So, so what do they mean by, by hostile environment and what's the goal? Well, there's a bit of a, a sort of background to the, to the words hostile environment. So it's a phrase that was developed in the Home Office in the sort of early years of the millennium about, and it was used for terrorists in the first place. The idea was that instead of catching them and prosecuting them and putting them in prison, you'd kind of try and deter them and keep them away by attacking their, their finances, their support base and things like that. And it was kind of extended to serious organized crime. And then just bizarrely, it was extended to to, to immigrants um, from about 2010 onwards. And you actually see that phrase being deployed and used deliberately by ministers like Theresa May, who was Home Secretary at the time. The, the committee, um, cabinet committee that was set up to look at various different ways of deterring illegal migrants and then trying to sort of drive them out of the country and stop them coming in the first place was actually called the Hostile Environment Working Group. Um, it, it was eventually retitled because I think um, the, the coalition partners, the Liberal Democrats at the time, thought that was a little bit just too sinister. Um, you know, that, that was, there was a clear intent there and that was the deliberate language of, of ministers. They've renamed it now the, the Compliant Environment, which sounds not that unsinister, if you, if you see what I mean, frankly, but, but sort of less overtly hostile because it doesn't actually have the word hostile in it. But a lot of us still refer to it as the hostile environment because that was the name the policy was labelled with by by the government itself at the time. Sounds like something out of a quite sinister bureaucratic department of naming things. <laughs> um, so, so what is the consequence of the hostile environment? Does it achieve what it's intended to achieve? Well... And you can use words in different ways. So um, a lot of people, when they're talking about the hostile environment, um, they're talking about just being nasty to, to immigrants, basically. And there certainly is a lot of that. You know, we've seen a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric in the UK over the last few years. It started to change a little bit, to be fair, um, with, with Brexit coming along. Um, but um, when, when, I, when I use the words hostile environment, I'm often referring to a quite specific set of policies, which, which is quite wide ranging. But it's basically about introducing citizen-on-citizen -citizen immigration checks so that employers have to check your immigration status, landlords have to check your immigration status, so do banks and building societies, which are, you know, they're not immigration officers. And then it also extends to, to other public services, so um, civil servants um, who are working for different government departments also have to look at immigration status. And people working in local governments check your immigration status. The NHS checks your immigration status. Um, so you get this kind of culture of checking everybody's immigration status that's that's been spread by various different laws. People are fined if they fail to do it properly. Um, and and the, the effect that it has is kind of similar to identity cards, but, but in my view, a lot worse, actually, because what you're doing with the, the hostile environment is you're forcing people to prove their right to be in the UK. And um, the fines only kick in if the person turns out not to have a right to be in the UK. And therefore, a lot of private individuals and, and civil servants and so on take a shortcut. And they think, well, if you're white and you've got a local accent, then I don't really need to check your status because I'm pretty sure you've got a right to be here. But if you're black or Asian or you've got a foreign sounding name or something like that, then I will check your status because I'm not quite so sure about that. And it's one thing for, you know, white, middle class, middle aged male like me to be asked to, to show my passport. It's not particularly intrusive. It doesn't threaten me in any meaningful way. But to, to ask somebody who's who's black to prove their status in the UK because you're not sure about it. That's a very different experience. I think it's much more challenging and existential, frankly, and it's much more offensive. Um, but that's what this policy is is all about. That's the whole point of this policy is is to have people's immigration status checked by other citizens and civil servants. Is the UK's immigration policy racist, intentionally or accidentally racist? It's a really difficult question. I think 
it, it is intentional in the end. Um, and I think ministers would deny that. Um, they'd, they'd say it wasn't intentional. But it's, in some ways, it's also, it's also the wrong question because I don't think it matters whether it's intentional or not. What really matters is the impact. And there's a, there's a huge amount of evidence to show that whatever the intention is behind it, it is racist in the way that it operates on the ground. And there was a lot of evidence beforehand. And frankly, it doesn't take much to think it through to realize that it was going to have racist consequences. Um, and, and ministers and, you know, to, I think to an extent, civil servants as well, simply ignored or didn't look at that evidence or weren't bothered by it. And they went ahead anyway. And that's what triggered the the kind of Windrush scandal to bubble to the surface. And that the causes of that were very long term, potentially, you know, immigration policies over the last sort of few decades that that, that caused it to, to to happen in the first place. But it, people weren't being turfed out of their jobs and homes until really from 2010 onwards by a real ramping up of enforcement of these laws and a spread of these laws to, to other areas than just employment, which is, is where it applied previously. And an inf- a kind of enforcement that essentially deputises uh, landlords, employers, the entire British population in, into checking that immigration status. Um, yeah. Since our audience is is global, uh, let's just give people a summary of, of you know who the Windrush generation are and, and what that scandal was about. Yeah, so the Windrush generation, that's a label that, that somebody, a particular campaigner, Patrick Vernon, kind of invented quite recently. And, and um, it's a label that sort of broadly includes basically the, the post-war generation of people who came to the United Kingdom from the old British Empire, what was what was then named the, the Commonwealth. And when they came to the UK, they came as citizens. So they weren't really migrants in in that sense. They actually had a citizenship of the United Kingdom and colonies, as it was called. And that was the same citizenship as people born in the United Kingdom itself. And they came from the Caribbean, from the Indian subcontinent and from Africa in the 1950s and 60s. And then gradually over the 1960s and 70s, I say gradually, it was, it was fairly sudden, actually, from, from 1962 onwards, um, new rules were introduced, which kind of created a two-tier type of citizenship where basically new entrants weren't going to be allowed in very easily, but the people who had already come um, w- would be allowed to stay. There was no talk about turfing them out or anything like that. But they weren't issued with status papers at the time. They were just sort of a law was passed, basically saying that they were lawfully resident but they didn't necessarily have documents issued to prove it. And for decades, they didn't need those documents because nobody was checking their immigration status on a day-to-day basis. But from 2010 onwards, with this this incoming Conservative government, um, immigration checks became an everyday part of life in the United Kingdom. And that meant that people suddenly found themselves losing their jobs, losing their homes, and facing deportation to countries that they'd they'd come from as tiny children you know decades previously and and many did um and i think what's what's probably most incomprehensible to to people looking at the windrush scandal from the outside is that there seemed that there was no way to prove your good faith that you know no amount of of having clearly been educated and lived in the uk for decades and and having worked and having um pay stubs and and whatever you know which who has pay stubs from the 70s um it seemed like it didn't matter uh, was there a, a policy of of disbelief on principle yeah and lawyers and campaigners often talk about there being a culture of disbelief at the home office and that that's a phrase that's been in in circulation for quite some time and it's it very accurately describes the general approach of officials at the Home Office who simply assume that you're lying unless you can prove otherwise. And that kind of very um, cynical approach was just astonishingly also applied to Windrush generation migrants who'd been you know, obviously living here for decades and had obviously good proof to show it. And officials were just applying their, their normal standards of proof, which are incredibly hard to meet, to to these people in a completely inappropriate way 
Um, and it just, it just beggars belief, really, that those officials couldn't see that what they were doing was wrong. But, but that, was, that was the approach that their kind of policy documents and so on taught them to, to adopt. Where does that come from? Is there, you know, do they have um, numbered goals to hit? Do they, I am fascinated by, by organizational culture and, and sort of how you get, you know, a bunch of, of people who I'm sure are decent people individually um, to to somehow, you know, become this, this hostile force. How does that work? And and how do we change it? Do, do we burn the home office to the ground? Metaphorically, obviously, I'm not advoc- advocating violence, but how do we how do we change or, or do we just have to start from scratch? Well, I, I, I'm not sure that simply um, abolishing the home office is necessarily the way forward. And, you know, there are people out there who, who say we should just abolish the home office. And the, the, the reason I think that is that um, all the functions that the Home Office currently sort of um, follows or, or, or is responsible for, um, those would all have to be done by somebody and they'd probably end up being done by Home Office civil servants. They'd just be you know, redistributed to, to other departments or a new department of immigration or something like that. And I don't think that would necessarily achieve cultural change. But w- w- what we've seen is leadership from the top of the Home Office that says that immigration is a bad thing and needs to be reduced. And famously, that that comes from the net migration target set by David Cameron as leader of the opposition in, in 2010. And it was an official um, government policy. And basically, ministers, and that, that, that policy was announced as a short-term political measure, I think, um, in order to um, position the Conservative Party um, with the electorate and also to position... David Cameron within the Conservative Party and to keep keep certain people happy. Um, but it turns out when you get into government that reducing immigration isn't as straightforward as you might think. And that, you know, which migrants do you want to, to get rid of? Is it the, the highly skilled ones who are coming in, in which case the economy suffers and GDP um, falls and employers are unhappy? Is it families, in which case families end up being split? Is it refugees, in which case you're, you're being very inhumane and your international reputation suffers? Um, is it international students who are incredibly valuable and, and sort of heavily subsidized domestic students? Um, so suddenly you've got all these hard choices about what, what you're going to do. And what they decided is that they were just going to try and do it, reduce immigration across the board, pulling every available lever, trying to make things as difficult as possible for migrants. Apparently, and it, the, the policy was never really spelled out. So we have to kind of read between the lines to see what they were hoping to achieve with it. And it seems to me that it was to try and put people off coming to the UK in the first place and also to encourage people to to leave the UK and to make their lives insufferable. Um, but one of the things I sort of talk about in the book is that there's no evidence that it actually achieves that. What, what it does do is it forces people out of legal status once they're in the UK, the kind of complexity of the rules, the, their arbitrariness, the, the cost of the rules, all the income thresholds and so on. The, these These sometimes people can't meet the, the rules and they don't leave, they just become illegally resident. And we've now got this potentially very substantial unauthorized population in the United Kingdom and estimates vary hugely. It could be between, you know, guesses range between 600,000 and 1.2 million. Uh, and these are people who have no proper status, but they're not also not being forced out of the country, which is just, you know, it's, it's really an intolerable situation for them. And I think for, for us as a society as well. Right. They've been pushed to the margins and into um, potentially, you know, abusive situations with, with landlords who, you know, don't look too closely, etc. Is the solution a an amnesty for a lot of these people? Is it a, a case-by-case regularization of, of these People. Well, I don't think you can remove them. That's that, that's the start. You know, if you if you look at the number of removals from the UK, again, you, you, I think people think that there are more removals now than there used to be. So, um, the the Labour government that was in place before two thousand and ten is now regarded as being soft on immigration, whereas the the Conservative and coalition governments from two thousand and ten onwards are regarded as being tough on immigration. But actually, the number of enforced removals from the UK has has fallen since two thousand and ten quite substantially. So less than 10,000 migrants are now subject to an enforced removal every year. And we also know from the statistics that 
an increasing proportion of them are EU citizens who've committed quite minor crimes. And it kind of looks like officials are plumping up even falling numbers with with you know low risk removals that are easy to carry out. So I, I don't think you can you can remove them. That's just it would be inhumane. It would you know require building detention camps, tearing families and communities apart. It would be horrendous. So that leaves well, if they're going to stay here, can you just ignore the problem? And I I don't think we really can or should. Um, or do you want to deal with it? And and there are two ways of dealing with it. One is to try and bring as many people within the law as possible with a kind of um, one-off amnesty or something of that nature. But if you were to do that, um, it just potentially doesn't deal with the problem in the long term and it recurs. You also have to address the rules that are forcing people into illegality in the first place and also offer a route to, to regular status. So I don't think it's an either or. I think you need an amnesty because there's just such a huge number of people who seem to be here without proper lawful status, which is bad for them and it's, it's sort of bad for um, lawful residents as well. But also you want to look at the rules more widely so that they're not forced into that status in the first place and there is a route out of it in the longer term as well. So I want to talk about the EU settlement scheme uh, and Brexit uh, because you suddenly have millions of people who never really thought of themselves as immigrants who are realizing that they are. Um, where where are we with the scheme which is entering its last year now so people are eligible if they're here before December 31st of this year and they have to apply before the end of June 2021 so there's a little under a year left um, where are we in terms of um, a number of people who've applied number of people who have obtained status uh, and, and does it look like it's going to be successful I can't say whether it's going to be successful, and no, nobody can, because one of the, I'll come back to this, one of the problems with the scheme is that we'll never know how many people didn't apply and who are in the UK unlawfully as a result. Um, but we, we know the latest statistics say that there have been, I think, 3.7 million applications. And I think status has been granted in something like 3.5 million of those cases. Um, around 40% of people are getting what's called pre-settled status, which is it puts them on a kind of five-year route to being settled in the UK. And then the, the others, 60% have, have been granted settled status, which is, is sort of permanent residence in the UK, although you can still be deported if you commit criminal offences in, in future. Um, there was a tiny number of refusals, although that has started to jump up quite considerably. So Last month, I think it was announced there had been 900 refusals, which you know, in terms of percentages is an absolutely minuscule um, number of refusals. Um, but this month it's jumped by a further 1,400. So it looks like you know, the number of refusals is going up. And we think that's because there was quite a backlog of cases and a, a lot of the cases in the backlog were considered complex. And somebody who doesn't seem to meet the requirements of the scheme or who has committed criminal offences and declared them. Uh, those are considered complex cases. So the Home Office has been sitting on those for a while and it's finally gotten around to actually dealing with them and it is refusing a certain number of them. So there's a, there's a high number of applications being made. We don't know how many EU citizens there are in the UK though. They're, they've never been counted. There isn't a mechanism for counting them here in this country. Um, and so the, the problem is that no matter how many applications there are, we think that there will be many people who don't make applications who could have, and those people are going to end up basically as unauthorized migrants once the deadline passes. And we, we just we just have no idea how many that's going to be. It could be tens of thousands. You know, a, a small percentage of the estimated three or four million EU citizens is still a very substantial number of people, and they will be subject to all of the hostile environment policies we were talking about earlier, where they. They're not able to work properly. Their bank accounts get shut down. They have to get turfed out by their landlords and, and so on. Yeah, and I, I get the emails from the Home Office on the settlement scheme. And there was a, a tiny line at the bottom of the last email that, that really chilled me. Um, it said, don't forget to apply for children. And I wonder if, you know, give it another 10 years, we're going to have a situation like, like the Dreamers in the US where you have a bunch of children who no one applied for when they couldn't speak for themselves and, and will find themselves without status when they're adults. Yeah, I think it, it's almost inevitable that that is going to happen. Um, so other EU countries are, are dealing with 
British citizens in, in a different way. You know, some countries are basically doing what the UK did for the Windrush generation in, in previous decades and passing a law saying you are automatically lawfully resident and then trying to sort out the documents later. Um, and other some other countries like the UK are saying, well, those who are resident have to apply, otherwise they'll be unlawful. And neither of those is a perfect solution. They're the only two available solutions, um, but the, neither of them is perfect. Because if you pass a law saying people are lawfully resident but don't issue them with documents, then they can have problems later on. Although I'd say it's a bit of a different problem. Being lawful but not being able to prove it easily isn't as bad as being unlawful and having no legal status and just being deported, um, which is what the UK is is essentially doing to a very large number, we think, of EU citizens. It could be, like I say, tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people. We, we just won't know. And that's a distinction you make very early on in the book. You, you choose to use the word unauthorized migrants uh, and undocumented cause, because you can have people with legal status, but just not the papers to prove it. And reading it, I realized, I think I'm an undocumented migrant <laughs> um, because I have pre-settled status and all I got is an email that made very clear that this was not legal proof of my status. So the EU settlement scheme does not, in fact, provide documents. Well, you, know, you should be very reassured that you've got a little number on a database somewhere in the home office that employers and landlords and banks and building societies and doctors and so on can, uh, if they if they can be bothered to, um, they have to sort of phone up the home office or, or get to the, the home office website, check whether you've got a, a, a black mark or, or a tick against your name, basically. And um, and then they can provide the service to you without fear of being fined if, if you have. And it's one of the, the big problems with the EU settlement scheme. And there's lots of problems with it. The, the, the biggest one is that it forces people to apply and some people won't for various different reasons. But another problem is that no physical documents are being issued. Um, and it means that, say, for example, if you're an employer in the UK um, or a landlord and you've got several people who apply for a job or, or for a tenancy or whatever, and some of them have got easy to understand proof of their residency, like a British passport, and they can just show it to you and others of them don't. And as the as the employer or landlord, you've got to go away and check with the home office whether somebody has status or hasn't. That is going to lead to discrimination against EU citizens almost inevitably. Um, and that isn't what the government say they want, but that's obviously what's going to happen. And they charge you for that check too <laughs> when, uh, when you're trying to get a place. Um, I want to talk about the Hong Kong situations, which I don't know, you'll you'll tell me, but it it sounds like it's actually um, quite different. Uh, you know, we've talked about this very hostile environment, and all of a sudden, you know, the prime minister is essentially potentially opening the door to I don't know three million people. Is that what's happening? What what is it that's being offered? Yeah, I'd be cautious about saying opening the door to three million people because it's like saying, well. I don't know how many million people there are who live in the EU. Um, and you know, obviously, free movement rights opened our doors to all those millions of people, but only a small number of them actually want to come. You of know? course. Um, and it, it, it's like we talked about earlier, it's kind of, it's not just about allowing people, it's also about whether they whether they want to or not. Now, Hong Kong is a bit different because there are what, what a, a, a sociologist or an academic might call push factors. That's a very neutral way of putting it. You know, there's some some pretty awful things going on in Hong Kong at the moment, and that may well drive people to want to leave. Um, and the the group of people that the UK is saying can move now to the UK are are called um, British nationals overseas, because British nationality law is a real mess. Basically, it's kind of it's a it's an after effect of um, the withdrawal of, of the United Kingdom from its empire. And there are several different types of nationality status which have the word British in them. One of them is British citizen, and that allows you to, to live and work in the United Kingdom itself. But there are several others, um, one of which is British national overseas. And it, it's really basically just a piece of paper, or at least it was just a piece of paper. It didn't allow you to live in the United Kingdom. It gave you a few minor advantages over other categories of migrant, but it, it didn't give you a right to live in the United Kingdom. And what the UK is saying is that they're they're not changing that basic requirement. So they're not 
giving what's called the right of abode, which would allow people freely to move to the United Kingdom if they wanted to. But they are going to say that you can get a visa and that, that the UK will charge you a lot for that visa, but there will be a visa available and you can come to the UK if you want to. You'll be allowed to work and you'll be allowed to settle after five years. Right, that's something we don't talk about a lot, but the the fees are incredibly high. So not only do you have an income requirement to, to get to the UK, but it can cost you a small fortune um, to get to the point of legal settlement. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's very expensive. The, the Home Office is trying to make the whole border system essentially self-financing so that migrants have to pay um, enough money that it basically funds all of the Home Office immigration functions. And it, it ends up operating as a kind of double taxation because migrants who come to the UK, often, you know, most of them are working here and they pay their taxes, but they also pay these really substantial fees, which are, by as a standard, usually it's at least a £1,000 for any kind of application you have to make. And depending on the route that you're on, you might have to make a number of different applications and it can be a lot more expensive for, for some routes as well. And the, the one that really just gets me is it, it's particularly counterintuitive is one right at the end of the process, which is the, the fee for citizenship. Because it costs, I think, over £1,300 to apply for British citizenship. And I said, well, some people might think, well, well, it's a, it's a privilege to be a British citizen and therefore you should have to pay a lot for it. But don't we want people who are long-term residents in the United Kingdom to become citizens? Wouldn't we encourage them to do that? And charging them a small fortune for, to, to do that just seems like a really insane policy to me, particularly where they're children. And, and even children have to pay a substantial amount to be registered. And we come across families where the parents simply can't afford it, so the children never become British citizens, even though they're entitled to it, or that the parents have to pick one of their children to be British and, and the others don't become British because the, the parents just can't afford it. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, but do, do we want people to become British if it's a system that is, you know, as you write, um, set up to maintain the, I forget how you how you phrased it, maintain the um, ethnic composition or integrity of, of what the UK used to be in, in a certain uh, nostalgic vision of what the UK used to be? Well, I think if you have closed citizenship laws where you've got high costs and it's difficult to become a citizen particularly for migrants then the effect of that is that it it tends to preserve the existing ethnic composition of the the population i'm putting that as neutrally as i can you know, it, it's racist basically you know it's about stopping migrants who are generally speaking not white from becoming citizens and whether that's the overt intention or not, that's certainly the effect. And so I, I would say that making citizenship easier to get, or at least not easier in sense of lower standards or something like that, but just less reducing the barriers to citizenship, you know, not having these ridiculously high costs, um, not making it so difficult for migrant children to become citizens, um, even restoring what, what we call birthright citizenship. So in the US, if you're born on the territory of the US, you're automatically a citizen. And that was a rule we used to have in the United Kingdom until 1983. That, that kind of thing, it, it has an effect of diversifying the population, which, which is surely, surely good and healthy. I wonder, you know, what it is that, that makes us hold on to a system that sees more interested in, in punishing um, people who are who are trying to to make it in this country, as opposed to a system that actually works. And you mention in the book, uh, trying to see migrants as citizens in waiting. And um, yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, and you know what it does to someone who will eventually be a British citizen to have been abused by their own society and their own government for however many years before they get there. Yeah, it's so that, that phrase, citizens in waiting, it's one that that's um, I borrowed from, um, from the US, essentially, where there was a formal status of American in waiting. It was actually it was quite a really interesting bit of, of, sort of US um, citizenship law and history. And it's a, it's a different way of seeing migrants. So at the moment, we've got in the United Kingdom, we've got all of these policies 
really which flow from, I think, the net migration target of, of basically reducing the number of migrants. We've got all these policies that I've collectively called deterrent policies. And the idea is that it stops people from coming and it encourages them to leave, essentially. And that's the cost, the complexity, all these income thresholds and, and, and so on. Um, and what, what it what it does, I sort of talked about this a little bit earlier, it, it doesn't actually deter people from coming quite often. Um, at least it doesn't deter um, any but the most internationally mobile. It can deter them, but it, but it doesn't deter most migrants from coming. But it does make their lives very difficult once they're in the United Kingdom. And this things like double taxation, well, the, the effect of that in real life is that a migrant family has a lot less disposable income than a comparable family that's already resident. They can't take holidays. They can't afford you know, new clothes and nice things in the same way that other families can. And you know, in extreme cases, they, they can't afford the fees that they're being charged and they end up becoming unauthorized migrants. But even where they don't, even where they can afford the fees, it's financially punishing for them and it, it hampers their life chances. And yet we, we also say that they should be integrating into our society and they should be grateful to be here and so on. And you think, well, that just doesn't match with those deterrent policies. You know, how, how, is, it, how is it encouraging people or facilitating their, their integration if you make their lives here so deliberately difficult in the first place? And if it did have the effect of deterring people or forcing them out, then you could see that there's a certain logic to it. I don't like it, but at least I could see there's a certain logic to it. But it doesn't do that. There's no evidence at all that it actually does force people out. So they end up living here anyway. Um, and and what's the point of that? Yeah, it, just, it just doesn't make any sense on a public policy level. So if instead we were to see migrants as future citizens, as citizens in waiting, and you know, a small number perhaps might commit criminal offences and might end up being deported and removed. But most who come here for work or for family or for, for refuge, for asylum, they will be allowed to stay in the long term, either as a sort of unlawful, unauthorised, but strangely tolerated group or as, as lawful um, residents. Wouldn't it be better to be helping them to become active parts of society and ultimately citizens rather than sort of hampering them in this way, which has, you know, we're all talking a bit more and openly about race. It has racist effects. You know, a lot of migrants are from, um, from, from black and ethnic minority groups and to, to be hampering their life chances and creating them this kind of um, almost sort of an underclass or servant class of, of migrants in a, in a society is just a really unhealthy, unhelpful thing to be doing. And you're talking about a change of policy that doesn't have to mean bigger numbers. It's just about how you treat the, the numbers that we do have. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I like to think of myself as being liberally minded. I don't, I don't really mind how many migrants come to the UK. I, I, I welcome immigration. I'm an immigration lawyer, apart from anything. But, um, you know, it, it's... Um, I'm not that bothered about the numbers when it comes down to it. If 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 rules are introduced that stop people from coming in the first place, if we stop skilled workers from coming to the UK or whatever, that that's kind of economically self-harming. But it, I, I haven't got a particular problem with that. I'd argue against it on a policy level. What I've got a real problem with, which I just, what I just think is just unconscionable, is treating people who do come it without respect and as this kind of beasts of burden almost with this really starkly utilitarian fiscal approach to to their their worth as human beings and that's just it's really wrong and it's it's counterproductive and it does not lead to a, a healthy society in my view well i think that's that's an important point that, that we can end on we could talk forever about yeah how broken this system is i wonder if you have sort of uh, parting thoughts on on how we fix it and how we get people who, you know, British citizens who do not have a personal or family experience of immigration um, to care about this and about what their government is doing in their name? I can't help on that last thing. How, how to make people care is, is very difficult. And I think the, the evidence suggests that the more contact people have with migrants, the more sympathetic they are, and that that's something that happens over time, essentially. 
um, the, the areas that were are most hostile to immigration tend to have the lowest levels of immigration, ironically. Um, and one of the one of the things that we have seen over the last few years is that concern about immigration has plummeted since the Brexit referendum. And we're not quite sure why that is. Maybe it's because it's in the papers less. Maybe it's because people think that immigration is magically under control as a result of the, the, the vote or something like that, even though immigration policy hasn't actually changed yet. Don't know. But immigration concern has, has really plummeted and people are much more worried about other things. And that was you know, even before the pandemic. Um, in terms of making things better, I mean, there, there are some quite concrete short-term wins, like reducing the, the cost of the system, um, the cost of applications, I just think is, is wrong and it has all sorts of um, really nasty effects. Um, also, I think creating proper routes to regularization, as, as campaigners call it, so that people who are here unlawfully can become lawful. So an amnesty and also proper routes to regularization. Um, in the longer term, we, you know, we don't want people to start getting upset or feel that migration is, is a sort of an unknown thing or out of control in some way. And I, I sort of reluctantly advocate in favor of an ID card system in the book. So I, I just think that the way the hostile environment works with the kind of immigration checks is just, again, I've, I've used the word unconscionable, I'm gonna use it again, it's just wrong. It's, it's racist, it encourages discrimination, and it's just, it's an appalling system. I think an identity card system where people's identity is checked rather than their immigration status, and where, for example, if you're an employer, instead of being fined if the person turns out to be illegal, you get fined for not carrying out checks on anybody, so it's a proper universal system. I think that would be significantly better. It, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't close my eyes to the fact that it might well result in some discrimination. You know, if, if, if you're forced to carry ID cards, you know, other countries show that police disproportionately stop and check you if you're, if you're black and ethnic minority and so on. But it would be a huge improvement on the hostile environment, which just is, is, is just wrong and, and, and should never have been introduced in the first place. Um, and then there are other slightly more sort of long-term complex things like simplifying the rules, making them less arbitrary, um, reforming citizenship laws as well, I think is important to make citizenship a bit more um, accessible for, for those who are, are here. And actually having a proper think even about our, our citizenship policy, because we don't really seem to have a citizenship policy in the UK. Like, is citizenship a reward for integrating? Or is it a step to, to, to encourage integration? I don't I don't know. You know, we, we just haven't really sort of talked about these things. Um, so yeah, there's kind of a range of things that I'm trying to, to to push in the book, some of which are quite easy to do in a way. Whether public opinion agrees with them is a, is a different matter, but legally they'd be very easy to do. Others of them would have to be a bit more long-term because it involves a bit more thought, a bit more consultation and has longer term more profound consequences okay well thank you so much colin thank you for carrying that message uh, i really recommend the book i think especially to people who do not have a personal experience of immigration and i want to know what it what it's like in in this country um thank you well, thanks for having me